church. Woo. So get this. Uh, I, was, I was just married in May. Yeah. Um, it was May. Good Lord. What? May 12th. Jesus. Thank you. Holy Spirit. You're here. Anyway, so I was married May 12th, and uh, my beautiful wife is making her way to the front, so that's good. Listen, I'm about to preach a whole lot better now. I was worried, but now I'm not. Uh, but anyway, I just got married uh, May 12th, and how many guys are married in the building? Okay, I would say half of y'all, maybe more than half. Um, this is great news for groups. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, so, you know, being married has ushered in a ton, a ton of changes. And uh, I quickly realized that a lot of things uh, have, to, have to leave. <laughs> you know what I mean? A lot of things come in, a lot of things come out. Um, and you realize that as you begin to uh, engage with your wife and, and you actually want to build a culture in your house, you actually want to build something. And, and her and I have talked, and I'm sure many couples have talked, like, man, when you step into my house, I want you to feel peace. I want you to feel light. I want you to feel like there's something good. Like geographically speaking, I'm not even sure on the theology. Actually, I am pretty sure on the theology. That, that's going to work. But anyway, when you step into a space, it's like, oh, man, that feels real good. And that has to do with a whole lot of things. That has to do with even physical things that you do in the house. And it also has a lot to do with the spiritual and emotional part of the house. Like, I want to keep this space clean, safe, pure, holy. I want to, I want to keep it wonderful. Anyway, so with all of that comes a lot of things that go in and out. For example, you ready for this? Creating culture in a home, things that worked out when you were single don't actually work out anymore sometimes when you're married. Some things you got to cut out and some things you got to add in. For example, eating cookies in my house. Listen, I'm be, I'm, I keep using the cookie illustration because, listen, people are genuinely, listen, don't, you don't know how bad this, this uh, addiction goes. So, listen, so, <laughs> yeah. So, basically, uh, how, how many of you guys prefer eating cookies to chips? Cookies? Chips. Who are you people? Listen. <laughs> I'll be honest with y'all. When I like, I, I for sure, for sure thought in my mind, I was like, everyone in their in their their whole mom and their grandmas and everyone is gonna prefer cookies over chips. And then I met my wife. Listen, the last time I have I've had cookies in my well, I'm gonna be honest. I actually cheated this week to be honest because I was preparing. I was like, listen, I'm gonna cheat a little bit, but thank you for that. Um, but the last time we had cookies in our house had been a quite a long time. You know what has been like the, the continuous uh, addition in my pantry? Chips. I never ate chips until Kristen Stoffer came into my life. And so now, cookies are out, chips are in. Listen, that's huge. That's real huge. And you know what's out too? I, I, well, I'll say this. Nothing has come out in that sense, but stretching and yoga has come into the house. Listen, when you could do stuff like this, you know what I'm saying? And like you can stretch out, that's kind of dope. I'm not going to lie. So for that, I've been thankful. Stretching, that kind of stuff has come into the house. I also had never stretched in like 10 years. I'm going to be honest with you. I played like pretty competitively soccer for some time, and it just, I'd never stretched. Uh, granted, messed up my hamstring a couple times and all that other good jazz. But here we are. Anyway, we're not preaching on that today. You know what's gone out? Forgetting things, being forgetful. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Forgetful. 
I, I now uh, own a man bag. I'm sure you've seen it around and maybe you haven't. But I basically have a man bag on me all the time. People say purse. Listen, I'm a, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to preach on this for a second. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. Anyway, you can call whatever you want. Point is, I have my phone. I have my wallet. I have my keys. I have a, a tied white pen, a tied pen. Hand sanitizer. I have a booklet that I can write my notes in and a pen. And it's just sitting right there. How many like men you want to sit down but you can't because you have a wallet on you or you have something in you? It's real. It's honestly real. Anyway, so forgetting things is now out the door because I now have a bag. And thanks to my wife. Honestly, thank you for that. You know what else is in? Knowing where everything is at all times. Or at least the expectation to know where all things are at all times. How many women say amen to that? Y'all crazy. Honestly, you guys are a gift. Anyway, so as, as I begin to build my home, there, I mean, I'm being funny in here, like the things that I'm listing, but things actually make their way out and things make their way in. Does that make sense? Like, I have to begin to adopt certain things that is ultimately going to build the culture in my house, even if it's just something as little as I'm going to remember what's in my house yeah. or what's in my possession, what's around me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know those things or I'm going to stretch more often. Things that kind of have to change are ultimately going to make their way in my house as I build the culture in my house. Does that make sense? Now, this illustration is all to tell you all about how Jesus, when he came onto the scene, as we previously heard from Pastor Lyle last week, there was a significant amount of um, emphasis on family, on culture, on on being together as one. Um, among one of the, among those things is, for example, Jesus born Jesus was born to a strong group family, and to some extent, this is kind of a review of what happened last week, and also. Pastor Lau did such a good job last week of doing that. If you missed that, please, please, please go to get that podcast because it's amazing. So Jesus was born into a strong family, uh, strong group family, I'm sorry. Family first and everyone else came second. Major choices were made through the patriarch. Uh, the blood family was stronger than marriage. Can you guys even believe that? If you married someone, what was even stronger connection, a stronger bond was actually what, you've had, what you had with your family as your brother and sister. Yeah which we'll get into that in a second. Uh, the good of the family is always, will always uh, supersede the good of the individual. Always. Again, if you want to hear more, all, more about that, Pastor Lau's message last week was amazing. Jesus keeps a strong group, strong group outlook, but then modifies. Spiritual family becomes stronger than blood family. So in the midst of all this, you know, here we have this strong Jewish tradition that is all about family that you were, I mean, these homes of the Jewish homes were actually all together in one like space. Yeah. If you had a cousin, they were sleeping like in, a, in the house next to you in one like kind of commune. Yeah. You'd get food together. You'd eat together. Like this was such a strong family unit. What uh, Pastor Lyle was talking about uh, saying a strong group family. Now, here's what happened. Jesus is born into that culture. How many of you guys know Jew- Jesus is Jewish? Are we aware he wasn't Christian? Yeah. All right, cool. Just want to make sure you all know that. Uh, that might be a message later, but we're not going to go into that right now. And then so Jesus is born to this. However, people started to get a little agitated because Jesus started saying things like this. Are you ready for this? In Luke 14, 26, the Bible says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, yeah. someone say, whoa. Wow. Wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person is not my disciple. How many of you guys know if you actually heard that, you were like, wait, what? 
What are you talking about? And it's, uh, granted, right now that sounds absurd, but even in the Jewish culture then, that would have been incredibly like, wait, what? What are you talking about? So that's such a huge, uh, huge thing to note there. So as we go through, though he would still use family language, talking of Jesus and values, Jesus seemed to know, seemed to show hostility toward the natural family. He instructed his disciples one in, to one another, be kind, sorry, sorry, he instructed his disciples to be actually a kind of family, but one that wasn't based on bloodline, but one that was based on relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually quite crazy. I'm going to get like yeah, super historical here for a second, all right? Is that all right? Yeah. Jesus is building a new kind of family. In Matthew 23, 8, he says, you are all brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Luke chapter 8, verse 19, he says this, his mother and brother showed up but couldn't get through to him because of the crowd. He was preaching at a, at a house and the house got so crowded, his mother, his mother and brother were outside trying to get to him, right? And so someone comes in and tells him, hey, Jesus, your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to see you. And of course, in classic Jewish tradition, they would have took precedence, they would have ushered them in and they would have had essentially like a VIP experience because they are the brother and the son. And then Jesus responds with this, my mother and brother are the ones who hear and do God's word. Obedience is thicker than blood. Listen, if, if I'm in the Jewish tradition, I'm like losing my mind because I'm hearing this man talk, talk about our culture, our tradition in such a way that I actually feel offended. So as you can see, like the culture began to kind of like engage with Jesus in a way that actually was quite offensive. Jesus started to say things that were, quite, I mean, Pastor Maggie said herself, like, the kingdom of God actually was so subversive and ushered through Jesus that it was like, wait, what? How was that supposed to fit into our rhythm? You get what I'm saying? Now, Jesus is saying that the bond between brothers and sisters in the kingdom is actually greater than that of your family bloodline. Because spiritually speaking, Jesus was setting the stage for an entirely new bloodline that would soon run through their veins. Here's the thing. So here we have a hard, like, like a, family, a strong family group uh, culture within the Jewish tradition, right? Jesus steps into this situation being raised in this strong family. Do you, do you guys remember how uh, when Jesus was young, they were caravan, the whole family was caravanning in, into Jerusalem? And the, whole, and the whole family caravaned out, and he stayed outside. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. And then he also responds to his mom and dad, like, hey, where have you been? He said, I've been doing the what? The business of my father. Immediately since he was a kid, he began to usher in this idea that, hey, you guys are my family, but the father in heaven actually has a greater hold of who I am and what I do on this earth. He was beginning to tell you that something greater than my blood family supersedes all of you. Imagine a 12-year-old, yeah, the Bible says he's 12 years old. Imagine a 12-year-old like, hey, like, respect mom and dad, but to be honest, um, the, the business of my father takes precedence. That's crazy. So anyway, so here we have Jesus being born into this group. And then all of a sudden, he, as he begins to grow older, he begins to say these things that have kind of like sparked curiosity, some debate, and even some tension between how he was raised and what he was saying. Does that make sense? And so as he begins to journey through his ministry on the earth, he begins to say things like, you know, if you don't leave your mother, if you don't hate your mom and dad and your brother and sister and come follow me, then I don't, like, you're actually not even one of us. Is that not wild? So here's where I want to set the stage for you. He's in a Jewish culture. I'm repeating myself, but I just want to let you know. He's saying things 
that kind of bring tension. And then all of a sudden, he's starting to come out with, hey, listen, if you don't hate your mom and dad, you're not my brother. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. By the way, uh, the, today's message, I totally forgot. I always forget to do that. Uh, today's message is called, hit it up, hit me with it. He couldn't even say his name. I, I'm, I purposely made that a little curious so that we can get there and be like, what, what the heck was he talking about? So we're going to get there in a second, okay? So get this. So Jesus, after his, he, you know, he is developing his ministry, and he's talking to all the, the, all the people in Judea. And after he actually ends up dying and resurrected, we all know the story, right? On a cross, resurrected. Yeah, yeah. The strong family tradition of, um, that were carried in within the Jewish culture had then become modified through Jesus. And then now the Christians that were following Jesus, the people of the way, were actually modeling and following, sorry, yeah, modeling and following the characteristics, the attributes, the actual style of the, of the way Jesus portrayed family, which is yeah, yeah. spiritual bloodline yep. supersedes uh, family bloodline. So the early church began to practice that in a, such a, a crazy way, and we're going to dive into that in a second, so much so that when, when Paul the Apostle, well, actually before Paul the Apostle, when he was Saul, he began to persecute the church. How many of you guys know that, right? He's a Roman. He was persecuting the church. And what ended up happening is, you know, on his way to, we all know the story, on his way to, on his way to Damascus, Damascus? Yes. On his way to Damascus, he's on his horse, and all of a sudden he sees a light. We all know the story, right? He falls from the horse, and he loses his sight. And he, the, the, the light is so bright, and then G, the, the, we're, we're led to believe that Jesus himself shows up to Paul, Saul, then Saul, and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, here's the thing. Paul was, Saul then was persecuting the church, but Jesus takes it upon himself and takes it so personally that he says, hey, listen, why are you persecuting me? When you persecute the people of God, you're not persecuting just individuals, you're persecuting Jesus. So Jesus takes it upon himself, like the, the, the personal responsibility that we together are one. I am your brother, you are my sister. Isn't that wild? Listen, church, we're getting somewhere, I promise, okay? Paul continues the family, sorry, this new kind of family tradition. I'm going to shoot some verses to you. Ephesians 2.19 says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. He's talking to the the church in Ephesus. He's talking to them, he didn't necessarily say the word family, but we infer that when he talks about the house, the family of God, the household of God, in the Jewish tradition, in in that uh, scenario, Speaking of house, it was synonymous with speaking with family. Cool? Uh, In Galatians 6, he says, let us do good to everyone and especially those of, sorry, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I'm sorry I don't have those verses for you. Behind you. Yeah, behind me. Yeah, behind you and and me. The verse, anyway. Um, So yeah, so let us do good to everyone, especially those who are the household of the faith. So again, household inferring family, inferring you know, this strong culture, right? First Timothy 3.15, God's family is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Again, talking about family. So all I want to, to, to tell you is that Paul continued this language of surrogate brothers and sisters that Jesus initially talked about, that spiritual bloodline supersedes 
family bloodline. Are we good with that? Cool. I'm giving you a lot of history right now. Is that all right? A lot of, all right. So then I'm going to keep going. Here we go. Jesus died, and then what ends up happening is that Rome begins to persecute a lot more Christians in Jerusalem, right? Christians were among fishermen, peasants, low class, and the poor that worshipped and crucified the son of a carpenter. So we actually, we actually begin to encounter that Christianity in its first, like the very first steps of Christianity, it wasn't this, it didn't explode in this huge major religion where it like competed with, you know, this Roman polytheistic uh, approach to gods or anything like that. It was literally, if I can like, I know we, we, Christianity in our day and age in this Western culture in America is like this huge giant, you know, thing, right? This giant religion, the, the prominent religion, if maybe even of, this, of the world that we know. Does that make sense? But in this time, following Jesus was those of the way, and those of the way, if I can be honest with you, were low-class, poor people, peasants, and fishermen. It hadn't even gotten, like, Jesus, if you can kind of picture a Mother Teresa, I'm not trying to equate the two, but I'm saying, like, Jesus would spend most of his time among the poor among the socially outcasted, among people who would listen to him and have the time of day to do so. Does that make sense? So Jesus was, was, the movement that Jesus began started with such a small and to some insignificant group of people. Are we good with that? Christians had no temples, no priesthoods, no liturgy or sacrifices like the other world religions that had been prominent in that time. They just broke bread together and sang hymns. Here's the question. How did Christianity spread so fast from the ends of the empire in this minuscule tiny town in Nazareth to become to all the way to the capital, to all the way to the capital? Why would thousands risk being ostracized and persecuted by the state by professing Jesus as Lord? Why? Couldn't we ask that question? Like, why was this such a huge phenomenon that was happening? That was some some uh, scholars uh, within Roman scholars would actually talk about this degrade. Uh, I think the word they used was degradable and shameful approach to God. Like it, it was this small thing in this group of peasants in this low class group in this small section of Galilee that was starting. Isn't that wild. Anyway, here we go. Savior complexes were common, by the way. Like, there were saviors. There was talk of sons of God. Like, that was a very common thing in the Roman world. Um, There was deified people, uh, demagogues. There was, like, there was a bunch that was common. That language was common. Small cults and sects were even common within the vast empire. However, it was the Jesus family behavior and the practices of the first century church that spread throughout the Roman empire. It's crazy. It actually gets crazier, honestly. And this, the funny thing is, as Christianity began to develop, what ends up happening is that we begin to see a movement happen where of generosity and compassion and truth and power that goes unprecedented in all the earth. So what happens is that even, I mean, I immediately think of Jesus' words, and you will know them by their fruit. And here's, here's why that comes in like into full play right here. Persecution to the church families would allow the family values of Jesus to be taught on, sorry, to be taught on and become the bond that stuck them together. 
The persecuted found shelter together and gave their lives for one another, lived together, and encouraged one another. So here's what was happening, if I can play this out historically for you. Jerusalem, after Jesus left, was a cesspool of angry zealots who wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire, who never could. There were, um, you know, small sects and small sect, C-T-S, got it, cool. Small sects that would actually, um, that would uh, try to uh, purvey a different type of um, approach to God. There were different different sects within the Judaic, like, sorry, the Judaism of the day. There was, there was different ideas, different, I'm not even going to go into that, but the point is there was different groups that would actually try to usher in something different that maybe wasn't as, as aggressive as Azels. And then there was Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah. And so within all of this uh, concoction of things was the persecution of the Roman Empire to the church. Yeah. Now, here's what was happening. These people, that followers of Jesus... There was accounts where, we're going to read in, in Acts here in a second, but there were accounts of actually people giving their lives for one another in love and sacrifice to one another. Yeah. Um, there, the, the, we, don't, we don't actually quite understand it in this day because we don't necessarily think of persecution the way that you thought about it then. Yeah. Although, if we maybe think about the Eastern world and some parts of maybe India, Africa, and, and some of the Middle Eastern countries, you think of it that way. But what was happening was if you believed or professed Jesus, Lord, you were obviously persecuted, right? Yeah, yeah. There were deaths, there were killings, there were crucifixions. Jesus was the first of many crucifixions, yeah, of, yeah, many, yeah. of many, of many, of many, of many. People burnt at the stake. We all understand that that's kind of how the persecution happened in the Roman Empire. However, yeah, yeah. so what ended up happening was that most people, most followers of Jesus were actually quite unsafe out in the open. So what would happen is that they would either find caves, they would find communes that were away from the city, they would actually find places of refuge that would ultimately become the ecclesia, that would ultimately become the church, places of gatherings where they would come together, sing songs, break bread, and watch out for one another. So I'll say this, the times, the times actually forced them to become super, super tight-knit because their lives depended on it. It was so much so that if, if my Christian brother doesn't watch out for me, I'm going to die. So, like, it was literally like, I will put, fo- put, I will put food in your mouth. I- I'm going to help you uh, get safe and traverse through, uh, you know, the marketplace, whatever it needed to. And you would bring food to the table, to the communal table, and they would all share because of not necessarily fear that they would be killed, but in some extent, in some extent, and, and what's the word I'm looking for? To some extent, to some extent, thank you, Jesus, help us. To some extent, like you would actually be in this super tight, almost like family. Does that make sense? Like you were genuinely engaging in a brother and sister environment in this one household. And typically, the head of the household was an elder of the church. Some sort of leaders. Sometimes it was Paul. Paul was, you know, um, checking in on different. Think of it this way: we we think of Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, the church in Galatians, the church in Philippi. These churches, you would think of like, oh, we meet here together, congregants. Does that make sense? In in that world, in that time, the church was either underground. The church was either in this like small commune that would get together and they would preach. They would talk to one another and exhort one another and challenge one another and bless one another in this small, small setting. Now, I'm not advocating for small settings because thankfully we're not being persecuted like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank God. Yeah, thank God. 
But I just want to bring your attention to the reality that church was significantly different from the church that we, to some extent, experience today. Is that all right? Can I advocate for that? So here we go. Here we're going to do, we're going to read Acts 4 as evidence of what I'm just telling you. Now, the full number of those who were believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said anything of any, no one said any of the things that belonged to them was their own. But they had everything in common. It means every, like not everything in common, like we look like one another, we practice the same stuff. It's, it's actually the, the, the materials and the resources that were all common use. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, persecution forced that on them. Here we go. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or households sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each of them as they needed. So listen, I'm gonna, this is the part where I ask you to bring all your resources to the, to the front. And we're going <laughs> to, I'm totally kidding. But here's the point. The actuality of that being the case was so real for them. People would sell their belongings and be like, oh, my brother's in need. I'm going to go ahead and sell what I have because I have access. And that means that you can have some. And now this is why in preparing this message, I was like, yo, this is a call. Like, this is for real. This is a call to, to lay down your life for your brothers. Does that sound familiar to the words of Jesus a little bit? Isn't that wild? So again, this church was so forced to, to practice in the behavior of Jesus this way for survival. And not only for survival, because I don't want to say that that was the only unction, that was the only reason why they practiced this, but it was the words of Jesus himself. And we're going to get into that here in a second. The practice, here's what Tertullian said, who was an actual church elder uh, in in the, I think, 108, 100 to 150 AD. The practice of such special love brands us in the eyes of some. See, they say. How they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. That was was a a fellow historian that wrote that about this man who said this about the church. We're going to make some observations that pagans, would, the Romans and other people, Greeks, would actually end up saying about the church in Galilee and as it spread in just a second. Here we go. Ready? Then John 13 says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. The words of Jesus, who was born in this Jewish ancient tradition of strong family group, he began to modify and say, this is good, but this is better because the spiritual bloodline will ultimately trump the family bloodline. And so the words of Jesus ringing true consistently through the the thoughts and and the minds of the early church, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Your, your relationship with God, your spirituality, and how you relate with God will ultimately be tested by how much you love your brother and your sister. Check this out. This is, this is honestly, I almost, I almost wanted to make this the, the, the like, crux of my message right here, but I, almost, but I didn't because there's was, there was a whole lot more. Here we go. Ready? Emperor Julian. Do we know who Emperor Julian is? Emperor Julian, after Constantine, how many of you guys know who Constantine is? Constantine, he basically, he's, he's the one who's credited with making um, 
the Roman Empire come under this Christian umbrella that, that basically said Roman Empire is now going to marry uh, Christianity. Yeah. And now Christianity spread significantly far throughout the land yeah. because of uh, Constantine. Now, that came with a lot of troubles, yeah. but we're not even going to that because that's, that's, a, that's a couple series long yeah. message. But anyway, so Emperor Julian was actually his nephew, okay? And his nephew basically inherited this Christian empire, so to speak. And, this, and Julian basically said, hey, listen, we're going to move ourselves away from Christianity. I want to bring in a new religion that's, that's not monotheistic, but that's polytheistic. It's, it's one that's traditional to the Roman roots. And he was like, I'm going to disband everything that my uncle Constantine did, okay? And in producing this religion and in trying to bring Roman Empire back into this pagan practice, this is what he says. Are y'all ready for this? Because, listen, tell your neighbor right now, it's about to get good. All right, so I saw some of y'all not actually talk to your neighbor. We're going to talk about that part too. <clears throat> I'm kidding. I'm not. Here we go. Why do we, this is what he said. Why do we not observe that it is this, the Christian's benevolence to strangers their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended, granted, this is a, this is a non-Christian talking, so for him it's pretended, but in this pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most increase atheism. Now, granted, to us, atheism is non-belief in God, but to him, it was belief in that one God. Does that make sense? So can I just rephrase that for a second for you? Why do we not observe that the Christians' benevolence and goodness to their strangers and their brothers and their sisters, their care for the graves of the dead, some people who would like leave that like left alone and they don't actually worry about it, the, people, the Christians actually take up responsibility and do that. And their holiness, their set-apartness, how different they are, have done the most to increase this thing they call Christianity. Look at this. He says, when the impious... Impious, actually, is the proper pronunciation. When the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men can see that our own people lack aid from us, the empire. Isn't that wild? So this emperor, this, this emperor is like, man, I want to reinstitute this whole thing. But man, like, how come, not how come, but like, we need to adopt the practices of, of this people of the way because they're the ones even taking care not only their own poor but our own poor now think about it this way who takes care of the poor in that's in that situation the poor were left alone they were outcasted there were the beggars there were the ones matter of fact there was an instance do you guys remember when jesus was walking through and the beggar was saying hey son of david have mercy on me and everyone's just you know why they're chanting they're not chanting no you know why they were calling out because they were on the outskirts they were on the outside jesus please they're talking to him and then finally jesus hears the cry and then he responds yeah. The poor were outcasted. They, were part of, they weren't even part of normal society. And again, in Jewish culture, family structure, family culture was everything. So the fact that they, they were ostracized meant a whole lot of stuff. Anyway, they lack aid from us, and they can see it. Emperor Julian. Lucian Samosota, which is another elder in the church, he said, their first, no, sorry, not, not an elder of the church. He actually was a, uh, like an, an opponent of the people of Jesus uh, early on. So this is what he said. Their first lawgiver, again, to them, is Jesus. Their first lawgiver, Jesus, persuaded them that they were all brothers of one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why they practice what they practice. Wow, wow. There is no space in the church for Lone Ranger spirituality. 
It just, there just isn't. If we're trying to get biblical, like Pastor Lyle was talking about last week, if we're trying to get biblical, there's no space for you to practice your own religion, your own spirituality out by yourself in your own closet, in your own prayer room. Granted, those are beautiful things, but to actually practice, develop, iron sharpens iron, we have to begin to be, understand that culture, that the culture of Jesus needs you to align with your brother and sister and talk to them and actually sharpen them. And here's the thing. Did you guys know that loneliness, isolation, relating to God in isolation gives no space for you to be corrected or no to, not, not no space for you to be corrected, but no space for you to like go so far out that you're just like, you've lost your own ability to connect with God. I have a lot of friends. Listen, I have a ton of friends who have like, hey, like, you know, the church isn't for me. I'm like, that's fine. Church isn't for you. That's okay. I know that. My compassion turns on first before my, you're wrong. That's, that's a message, by the way. But anyway, so I'm like, hey, that's fine. You, you know, you do, do what you need to do. And later on, months later, it's, you know, this, I'm not even sure about Jesus anymore, to be honest. Like, the way I just connected with him was just so, it's just, it was just so regimented, so regulated. That I just, you know, he's just much more than that. I'm like, that's cool. I'm, that's fine. You can do whatever you want. However, if you are in community, you can explore those avenues. However, within community, your, your crooked path or your way to try to find him becomes a whole lot more straighter and actually able to sharpen each other and be like, hey, actually, here's the thing. I just want to talk, to, talk about this for like two seconds. If you're experiencing a Jesus in a God that maybe you haven't maybe been taught in your Sunday, Sunday school class, not this one because this one teaches all the good stuff. But in your Sunday school class and you're trying to experience, you're trying to figure out God, like what are you really about? And you have a lot more questions. That is amazing. As a matter of fact, we encourage that. We want to spark curiosity. We want to spark debate. We want to spark conversation. But within the context of family is where you can have healthy conversations. Does that make sense? It's just so much better that way. You do so much more justice by yourself and the church. The church is blessed by your difference of opinion. It's blessed. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. That's another message. The, the person on your right and your left could be going through incredibly difficult times, and you need to bless and encourage and walk with them. How about you ask what's happening to the left and your right? I know, like, in this culture, like, it's super hard to be like, hey, like, for real, how's your heart? How you doing? Or not even that. Like, that's step one. Step two would be, hey, i am be honest with you, I'm struggling today. Like, can you, like, pray for me? Here's what I'm thinking. Not even, like, and not even situational. What if it's seasonal? And what if it's your spirituality that's, that's on the line? It's like, hey, man, I'm really struggling with my belief in God. And then in community and then in our church family, we can help steward and actually help navigate those conversations. Not that we want to control you or have, like, the dominating uh, say, the narrative in that conversation, but that's because we actually can sharpen one another. I'm not going to go into it now, but in the Jewish tradition, you actually grew by asking more questions. Somehow in the Christian culture, if you ask questions, you're all of a sudden ostracized. You're like, you should undoubtedly believe what's in this book. And, and that's completely okay. But I'm going to be honest with you. Questions are holy. Because it actually leads you to discovery. We need to ask questions. Because as we ask questions, discovery can happen. Curiosity can happen. And like Abraham, wonder begins to flood your heart. And faith begins to blossom from a space of wonder. Could God be bigger than we think? Those kind of questions bring up faith. And in family can be actually straightened. It's like the tree that begins to prune. It's like, oh, this is off. Hey, bro, like, yeah, that's, that's kind of weird. But we can begin to chop that. 
Bible, like Jesus himself in the Bible talks about pruning. And pruning happening, happens in community and within church. Is that all right? All right. Yeah, there's a billion ways I can go into this, but listen, I'm not going to. I'm going to put this verse on the screen. It's Luke chapter 10. I'm going to close this out on something that I actually believe that is timely. And I'm a little bit afraid to talk about this, but you want, honestly, it's going to be okay. Have you all had fun so far? Have you learned something? Although my goal is not for you to have fun, okay? My goal is for for change and the Holy Spirit to actually provide an avenue for your heart to begin to move. But we're going to go into that. So here we go. Is it right behind me? And behold, got it. And behold, a lawyer stood up, sorry, stood up to put him to the test. I'm going to pause right there for just two seconds. It takes a lot to build culture. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort. And the Jesus that we see, we don't necessarily think about it this way, but the Jesus that we see in Scripture, granted, a quarter, if not a fraction of the accounts that Jesus was instilling culture and teaching were, made it to the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, like, again, from all the deeds that he did, yeah. what, what's the Bible say? Yeah. There's not enough books in the world yeah. to fill all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have to understand that there is so much that Jesus did that wasn't necessarily written there, but that constantly fortified, strengthened this idea that family is what was gonna, like, is what was gonna transcend and what it was gonna perpetuate to reach the other people. Does that make sense? And we see it in evidence in, in, the, in the Roman Empire in the, in the pagan response and the pagan view to, the, to Christians. We're seeing them say like, oh my gosh, look at how, look at how drastic their behavior is. Look at how much they care for, like, for, if I can put it this way, for pagans, non-Christians, to respond and to react and to comment, provide feedback on the Christian way, and to that extent, to that degree, there had to have been a Jesus who consistently pushed yeah. for that. Yeah. Think about it this way, if I can put it another way. Yeah. To receive to be ostracized and to be persecuted by the Roman Empire, the most powerful, prominent empire. Think about, like, I'm not going to go there. Think think about just being persecuted by such a strong, strong, militant, powerful, powerful, powerful empire. And so in the midst of that, for you to make a decision to step into the, okay, I'm down to be ostracized, I'm down to be persecuted by the state, I'm down to risk my life, I'm going to do it. Boom. For that to happen and engage with community on that level, a lot of groundwork had to been done here. A lot. And Jesus did it here. And then Paul pushed it forward. And then what we have is ancient Christians, early Christians, practicing this thing with the conviction and the power of God that flooded through them because they believed that my brother, the way I love God is the way I love my brother and sister. Granted, there was a whole lot more to that than this, but I'm emphasizing this because this is so, so powerful in the way that pagans would actually view Christians. Like, look how well, look at how well they have compassion towards the poor, the needy. They not only take care of their own poor, they take care of ours, the Roman Empire, which happens to be our enemy. They took care of their enemies. Jesus himself said it. 
Love your enemies. And I'm going to go there for a second. Is that all right? Yeah. Y'all give me like five, ten minutes. Is that all right? Yeah. I know it's like hot in here. But here we go. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, granted, he wasn't talking about life in the afterlife. He was talking about life now. We're going to get to that in a second. He was talking about how can I live a full life in the Jewish tradition, you didn't talk about the afterlife. You, the, the, the life that you actually lived is the life that you would speak of. That, and as a matter of fact, a lot of times where they would actually talk about life and life abundantly, Jesus is talking about the life you would have now. For the Jewish culture, the Jewish tradition, in Judaism, you wouldn't think about the afterlife because that was a certainty. That, you didn't have to think about anything there. You had to think about the practice of the present, well, the practice of God, the practice of pursuing God in the now, Okay. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So get this. This man comes in. He's like, I'm going to test Jesus. Because he actually had been talking to some rabbis. And all of a sudden, this other rabbi, this other rabbi, this man, the law, could be considered a rabbi. Excuse me comes up with the, with the idea, with the desire to test Jesus. And so he comes up and says, hey, teacher, what, what must I do to, eternal, to inherit eternal life? And this wasn't a genuine question. This was a man who wanted to test Jesus. We were like, okay, let's see if you're on your toes. Because as a matter of fact, testing, asking questions, and kind of like uh, bringing another counter argument to someone else was actually the way that you developed your understanding of scripture, your interpretation of scripture. In the Judas, in the Judaic culture, there were many interpretations of scripture. And so rabbis would come to each other and counter argument just for the sake of argument to, to strengthen your claim and to strengthen my claim, claim. And sometimes what would happen is that both rabbis would actually come to the same conclusion. Isn't that wonderful? So another teacher of law came up to Jesus, hey, how do you inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how, how do you think? What, is it, what does the book say? And this man says, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this man knew, right? And he said to him, you have said correctly, Jesus said, do this and you will live. Again, live. Now, live. Not you will live then. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Yeah. Woo! You can almost see, listen, he's, something's cooking. You know what I mean? <clears throat> this whole idea, like, this man comes up to Jesus, and he's like, oh, I'm going to test this guy. And so he, like, you can tell something's about to pop, right? You don't test Jesus without getting, like, owned. You know what I mean? It's just, it's going to happen. Do this and you will live. And he, desiring to justify himself, said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus was like, thank goodness you asked that question. I'm about to tell you. You ready? Jesus replied with a story, as was common with Jesus. A man was going down from Jerusalem to, Jer to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. By now, sorry, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. 
And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, which is hilarious because if the, the, the roads in those times weren't, there wasn't another side. The, the road was like from here to like here. You know what I mean? Like, unless it was a Roman road, in which case it would have been pretty big. But even then, it was people passage there with a donkey and that's it. You know, like you don't need four, four lane freeways. Feel me? So it's like, oh, look, I see him over there. Who's like actually right here? You know what I mean? Okay. That's not unnecessary detail, but I wanted to share that with you. He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. Now, these people are supposed to be the holiest of the holiest of the holiest, right? Dedicated the, the temple and to the uh, practice of God. But a Levite, when he came to place and saw him, passed by on the other side too. So even the holiest of people. So what Jesus is actually arguing is not even if you were the holiest of the holiest of people can you inherit life. Does that make sense? I'm getting there. Listen. But a Samaritan... I'm going to stop right there for a second. So I know y'all have heard this like a lot if you've been in church, but I want to just dive into this for just two seconds. To be a Samaritan within Jewish culture, A, you weren't even mentioned, okay? Like you were so at odds with Samaritans that you didn't want to deal with them. You didn't want to see them. You didn't want to know them. You didn't want to be like any kind of way involved or, or, or be known to have shared any kind of time, space, anything like you didn't want them. Why? Because Samaritans were disgusting. And the reasons why it's historical, which I don't have time to go in there. But the reason is because, I'm sorry, not the reason. They had this genuine disdain for these people. Absolute disdain. Now, it was known that Jewish, like the, the, that the Jews were actually at a superior place than the Samaritans. Samaritans was basically the ostracized, the neglected of this, of this culture, of this community. The Jewish were the ones that raised himself, and the Samaritans were like, oh, those people. You get me? It wasn't like they were like feuding families, both equal in power and influence. No, 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 no. Samaritans were of the lowest of the low, which they actually, they would understand. That's why it makes sense why they would understand why someone needing help, they could help. Okay? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and saw them, and he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He spent money, he spent his resources, and he gave his time for this non-brother. This person he's supposed to hate. And the next day, took out two denarii. Two denarii is actually worth two days' work, okay? One denarii is one day's work and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proves to be the neighbor to the man who fell to the robbers? Jesus asks. And this right here is, is the cornerstone, I think, of this bit. What does it say? The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, this was so, so subversive. Jesus was telling a teacher of the law, someone of high prominence in the social structure, born in this idea of strong family religion, of strong family uh, approach of living. Jesus told this man and said, go and be like the one that you hate. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And he properly responded. 
he couldn't even say his name. He couldn't, he couldn't fathom the word, I'll be like the Samaritan. The one of the Samaritan is the one who is my neighbor. He couldn't even say that. He hated him so much. He hated the Samaritan so much. He was like, it's funny because you don't read that in scripture. You don't think, oh yeah, that's, that's oh yeah, we didn't hate him. Sorry, he, he hated him. That's why I couldn't say his name. But there's so much, the, the writers were artistic in some senses. And this is what was trying to be said. Jesus was so subversive. He was like, hey, listen, how well you love your neighbor is how well you love me. How you treat your neighbor is synonymous with how you treat me. Jesus said himself, however you treat the least of these, you do unto me. And so Jesus was illustrating right here, listen, the love of your neighbor, awesome. The love of your enemy. This is the type of person who is your neighbor. And going back to the first point, he said, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I inherit this? Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Yes. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's right. Let me tell you who your neighbor is, though. Your neighbor is your enemy. You could potentially argue, you could potentially argue that if you were to love your enemy, that would become your brother. And if you can call your enemy a brother, then I guess we achieve the kingdom of, of heaven on the earth. If we want to achieve family, we have to put on the character of Jesus. We have to be able to say to our enemy, whoever that is. Most, most people, my, my wife was saying earlier, he's like, I don't think anyone's like, oh yeah, that person is my enemy. We don't use that language. That's right, we don't. But if you were to actually believe, actually like break down enemy, okay, maybe you don't call them your arch nemesis. You're not four, you know? When I was, you know, when you were four, you're like, that's my arch nemesis, you know? But your enemy is someone who you don't like. How could they be like that? An enemy is someone who doesn't adopt the way you live. An enemy is someone who might live. As a matter of fact, the Bible actually uses this language. An enemy is anyone who lives against the will of God. Your enemy is those who live against the will of God. Or it might be someone that you see in a grocery store that gives you an ugly look. Yeah, sure, whatever. That's, that's cool too. It's easy to love those. But it's harder to love your real enemy. It's harder to love your neighbor who you don't, you don't really mesh with. Those are the people who you should love to truly build family on the earth. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, then maybe, maybe you can love your enemy as yourself. Now, this takes a lot of courage. This takes a lot of the Holy Spirit leading you, but that's the only way to live. That's the only way this life to practice the church is the only way you can actually accurately and honestly practice family on the earth is if you lay all of yourself down and adopt the way of Jesus. Who lay down his life for us, even when we were enemies to God.
he gave his life freely to us.